Hey, this is Hojo, and you're listening to me on Baseball and Barbecue with my two best friends, my new best friends, Jeff and Leonard. So y'all enjoy it, okay? to episode 100 that's right episode 100 of baseball and barbecue i am here with my incredible co-host jeff cohen and i am leonard aberman and this is episode 100 jeff it's so great to be here with you 100 how about that leonard we spoke so many times about episode 100 we were getting close what are we going to do to celebrate episode 100 but i think it's just a number i think it's just a number because every podcast that we do we try so hard to have great guests to make uh, our listeners happy and and to me yes it's episode 100 but it's a number However, right. but today, but this podcast is no different. We do have two great guests. Yeah. Like, and who do we have, Jeff? We have Adrian Miller, who wrote the book Black Smoke on African-American barbecue history. And uh, would you believe in New York Met Catcher? <laughs> <laughs> Mackie Sasser we have on the program. That's kind of a gift to us being yes. Met fans, I guess, right? <laughs> yes. We kind of gave ourselves a little gift. You know, the benefit of doing this is we get to speak to our, maybe our childhood heroes, you know. And Jeff, we did have the intro was Howard Johnson. Yes. With Hojo. Yes. And I'm glad you mentioned that, Leonard. Just, I'm not sure if everybody knows this. If not, please take a look at our Facebook page. Scroll down there. Howard Johnson's grandson was involved in a terrible accident. He lost five toes. And uh, he's, well, I'm reading on Twitter, he's doing better. But he still has to go through lots of surgeries. I'm, I think he's like two years old. And so please, if you can, uh, go off Facebook page, scroll down. There is a Go GoFundMe page to help uh, Tanner Johnson. Terrible ordeal for a little kid. And we just hope, you know, we pray that he gets a, a full recovery. So, but I did hear he's getting better every day. So that, that's good news. That is good. And, and you know, that kind of leads us into more of, uh, I guess, a reflection on this episode, because 
you do think about the episode, the podcast. Jeff, we've been doing this now. It's, it's going to be four years in December that we're doing this podcast. That's we true. Release, right? We release an episode every two weeks. Let's talk a little bit about the podcast. G- give me some of your reflections on some things that this podcast has meant to you, things you didn't ever think that you would do or have the ability to do or whatever. You know, the floor is yours, my friend. Me? Well, <laughs> the one thing this, has, this podcast has let me have done is, is to hang out with my friend every so often, what, whether it be in person or, or now on Zoom. Right. Uh, every we get to hang out every couple of weeks. That's the big best part. Yeah, that is nice. Of course, yes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, but you know, Len, it's it, just meeting all the people. All the people we've gotten to talk to. Some of the people we met, make me made some great friends. And this is uh, I never thought it was possible to do this. And it's been a really uh, for the last four years, just just a great great experience. And you know, I hope it lasts you know, for a long 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 time. I mean, what what are some of your reflections? Well, I, I'm going to say that we have this interview, Black Smoke, and we have a guest co-host with us, Doug Shiding. And I never would have thought that we would have met someone like Doug, who we actually met through the other podcast that he's on, which is the Barbecue Central Show. And I'll get to that in a minute as well. But... Through this podcast, we got the chance to meet Doug, and I'm always amazed we have never met Doug in person, and yet he has become like a very, like a really good friend of ours. And I know that it almost sounds strange that to have never met someone in person, but we've spoken to him. We've spoken to his wife. He's guest hosted with us. We talked to him off the podcast, you know, just call him up, we text, we whatever. And it's just a relationship like that, a friendship like that is something that I never would have thought when we first started this that we would have had. And then, of course, some of the people like Pintar, right? You know, we've met Pintar a number of times. We've had him on. He's helped us. We, we had a, he got us um, Marjorie Adams, of course, you know, Doc Adams' great-granddaughter, and may she rest in peace. And that's another great friendship that we've started. Yes, and, and there's a couple of people I'd like to mention that really helped us in our podcast. It, you know, obviously, Gary Mack, who's been really, yes. a, he started us with very great advice and things that Absolutely. we should do. So, you know, we want to thank Gary Mack. Also, I met the you know, we, we've been on the Baseball PhD sh- show mm-hmm. with Ed Caspitas and, and Farley and Mark Rantala, and they've been a very, very good resource as well. They've been, you know, very good friends. I have had me on, had you on uh, once, yes. Yes. and uh, they've been re- really great to us as, mm-hmm. as well. So, you know, the, just the people in the podcasting world, you know, yes. it's just been fantastic. Now, the danger you run into when you do something like this is there's always going to be someone that we leave out. Well, and before you say that, I, I, right. I just thought of somebody. <laughs> right. I want to thank the guys at the, the Metzian podcast. They've been yes. very uh, good to us as well. They you know, they, they've been great. Yes. And, and I mentioned before the uh, Barbecue Central show. Greg Rempe has been a terrific uh, mentor, and he just 
you know, he has a wonderful podcast, wonderful show, and he's always available for bouncing ideas off of. He has ideas for the show. And I just, I really appreciate that. Someone else, Jared Kasdan, you know, he prefers, I've, I've wanted him to come on so many times and he prefers to stay, they say, uh, UTR under the radar. In the background. Um, probably, he probably won't even like the fact that we said his name, but he deserves a ton of recognition. Yes. There, are, there are so many guests that we've had on that he encouraged us to get, gave us the contact information for, and he's just been terrific as well. And I want to give a shout out to Gary Looney, who I just met in person when I went out to Arizona. He he works at the Angels training camp, and he's a really great guy. And just want to thank him as well. He's been on the show a couple of times. And also, we have some companies that we've worked with. There's BaseballBBQ.com, which has fantastic grilling tools and accessories. And they're wonderful. They have been a great source for us for various things. We've got the Pandemic Baseball Book Club that we've had their authors on. They're always willing to come on the show. We try to support them. And of course, Fifth and Cherry for their wonderful cutting boards. Tim Razor, who we've had on. So those also, fantastic. And we want to thank all our listeners, too. Yes. (laughs) And I'm glad we don't have to name them all by name. Right. That would take a long time. Right, but, but yes. anybody, if anybody wants to reach us, you know what we do. You give us a call, 516-855-8214. Our email is baseballandbbq at gmail.com. Make a comment on our Facebook page, Baseball and BBQ. Twitter, the Twitter, at Baseball and BBQ. Instagram, Baseball and Barbecue, where barbecues are all spelled out. We have a YouTube page, Baseball and BBQ. Our website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly. Dot com and please rate and review us. And you know what, Jeff? We go all the way back. If you remember when we went to Atlantic City to the Barbecue Expo and we met Lisa Joe Getter from Barbecue Guru and Ray Sheehan from Barbecue Buddha. And again, I guess I'm getting into dangerous territory because I'm starting to mention names, which I, I shouldn't do. But I'm also going to mention someone we're going to have back on. We haven't, but he's been on twice. And I know that he would come on in a heartbeat. And that's Bob Kendrick. Yes. The president, absolutely. right? The president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. I just, I hope, I, I know we're obviously, there's tons of people that we could thank. And we're grateful to everyone. So, you know, just if we don't mention you by name or whatever. It's not because you're not in our thoughts and we don't appreciate you. You know what, Jeff? We appreciate everyone. We appreciate every single guest we've ever had. We appreciate every listener that we have. Every time somebody has sent us a comment, we have some people that send emails to us. We appreciate all of that. So anyone listening to this, we do this because we love it and we hope that we entertain it's episode 100, so we, 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 we're reflecting a little bit. But again, like I said, this is 
we have great guests, but you know what? Episode 99, we had great guests. Yes. And, you know, anybody out there, please let us know. If you want us to cover a topic or have a suggestion for a great guest, give us a call. Send us an email. Appreciate it. Absolutely. We're always open to suggestions and, and all of that. And we just, we really just thank you. I, I, I guess that, that's the thing. Thank you to everyone. All right. I think that's good. Jeff, t- take it away. I'm, I'm, I, I can't even speak. All right. Well, <laughs> I'm here, so choked up. Here's our interview with James Beard Award winner, Adrian Miller. With Doug Shining as our co-host. We are very excited to welcome two very special people to the show. The first, Doug Shiding, is someone our listeners should be very familiar with. He's an extremely knowledgeable and wonderful cook, and more importantly, someone we love having on with us as he truly adds a special element to the show. And we felt he would be a great addition as we welcome a guest that we have been looking forward to having on for a long time and are thrilled he's with us. Our guest is an American culinary historian, lawyer, public policy advisor, and certified barbecue judge. He won the James Beard Foundation Book Award for Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine in 2014. I'm sorry, one plate at a time is the rest of the title. He was a consultant on Netflix's Chef's Table Barbecue. Prior to that, he served as a special assistant to the president during the Clinton administration. His latest book is Black Smoke, African Americans and the United States of Barbecue. It is for this book that we must tell him how truly grateful we are as we are lovers of barbecue and history. So it gives us the chance to learn about this wonderful method of cooking and people who we owe a great deal of thanks to, but who have been overlooked. Hopefully this book will help with changing that. Baseball and Barbecue is honored to welcome Adrian Miller to the show. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you. It's so good to be with you. Now, Adrian, I, before I throw it over to our guest host, there is one thing that showed us <laughs> that you belong on this show. There is... Absolutely. I'm not going to say what page people buying this book have got to find it. But in this book, you have something. It starts with barbecue and baseball had long been Juneteenth's unofficial motto. Black communities would come together on church grounds or in public recreational spaces to celebrate with food, music and games, especially baseball. If yep. that doesn't say it all. <laughs> there you go. So welcome. Doug, I'm throwing it over to you. I know the page. I, I, okay, I can't answer that. So, but anyway, so Adrian, I, I, I'm one of those, those people that when I go on vacation, I read barbecue books. So I actually got the privilege of reading Robert Moss's book, his second edition on the history of barbecue, right? Yeah. And then the you know that took two days to read and then i took three days and read your book back to back so it was an incredible experience the different perspectives there were some of the same stories in both books and it was total it was like looking from one side of the field to the other side of the field and you know even 
I think the the message that came across is like the, the superintending versus cooking. And, and and maybe you can explain a little bit of that because I didn't really understand it when I was reading the first book until, and then when I read your book and, you know, uh, your forward was blazing, it, the marginalization of black, you know, I was like, whoa, this is going to be a hot book. But uh, uh, anyway, yeah, if you wouldn't mind the superintending versus cooking, because I think that's a, an important concept as we, we look at the black history of barbecue. Yeah. And the reason I came across that word is because I was trying to figure out when do we start saying pit master? Because you just don't really see it in the 19th century or earlier. Yeah. And what I saw is this term superintending. And so um, a lot of times it meant it was just the person who oversaw everything. So they obviously had some barbecue knowledge because they could instruct other people, they, but they weren't actually doing the cooking. Right. Usually the superintending person got the credit <laughs> for the barbecue, even though somebody yes. else was doing the work. Yeah, but usually it was the person who was just kind of surveying the grounds. Because, you know, especially in the 19th century, some of these barbecues were gargantuan, man. We're talking about 10,000, 20,000 people showing up at these things. And so a mile-long trench, hundreds of animals being cooked, and, you know, hundreds of people cooking these animals. And so there were a lot of logistics that had to be coordinated for that. So somebody had to just make sure everything was on track and replenishing the fire, all kinds of stuff was going on. Right. I, I remember the one that was 150,000 and both, you, you both had that, that very explicitly, that story of how, you know, the, I think that's the largest barbecue cook-off or, you know, cook ever. So. Yeah, J.C. Walton, uh, inaugural barbecue when he became governor of Oklahoma. Right. Uh, if I can ask one more question, uh, Lynn. So the, the Black Smoke and, and the name of the, of the book. And, uh, you know, you talk about that in, in the 100 pages and stuff, so, the industrial pollution, you know, as it relates. And so the double entendre there is, is so true. And, and uh, it, it, it rang to me because actually when I won the Houston Rodeo, we haven't shared this or anything, but I was actually a hired gun for one of the largest black tents in, in the Houston uh, rodeo. So oh. I was, it, it was a reversal of roles from the standpoint of I was, my wife and I were the only two white people in, in the tent and uh, they accepted us. And, but I'll, I'll tell you the story uh, uh, at a different time, but um, yeah, wow. the team was called across the track. Okay, and 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 so I was like, and and so that really rang so true to me in terms of you know the name of the book and how it came and and really the double the double meetings that that were in that whole thing. Yeah, and um, just for those who don't know, so the the way I came up with the title is I was watching CNN one day and they were you know announcing the Pope. They were waiting to get the Pope, and they said, "Well, we'll know when that that chimney. There's some white smoke that comes out of that chimney." I said, "Black smoke." Well, I, oh, okay. I held on to that one. Um, but yeah, it has so many meanings because of what you just said. Um, and it just, it just was a title that just sang to me. So, uh, Adrian, I found the book fascinating, you know, great history, things that I didn't know and really appreciate now uh, that had that knowledge. I love the biographies in between the chapters. I, I found that very interesting. But I want to go all the way back to chapter one. Mm-hmm. where it's titled uh, Barbecue's Native American Foundation. I thought this was very interesting. It, it was called, I think you used, uh, and I'm reading from the book, Barbacoa. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that was in the 16th and 17th century. And it was different methods to barbecuing. I, I, was, I don't even know if it's called barbecuing back then, but if you can explain those different methods, that'd be great. 
Yeah. So, um, and the reason I did that is because, believe me, I wanted to prove that barbecue was African in origin. Um, you know, cross my arms and say Wakanda forever. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'm a guy who's guided by the facts. And so barbecue's early history is hazy because it, a lot of the stuff just wasn't documented. And then the people that did document it either didn't do a good job or they had an agenda. So there was a lot to sort through. But the the, the story of barbecue, like we hear that Columbus and crew see indigenous people in the Caribbean cooking on a raised platform. And that was barbecue that eventually the Spanish word for it was barbacoa, but that didn't seem, I was like, well, how do we get from that to the pit method that was Southern barbecue? So I really wanted to take a look at what indigenous people were doing in the American South. So just really quickly, some were doing the raised platform and built the sticks with a slow fire underneath. Some were doing what I call the piercing sticks method where they had a fire and they would put morsels of meat on the on sticks and bend it towards the fire to cook it. You could bend it back, move it forward, you know, to, to even out the cooking. Um, others were doing what's called a, a spit, and that would have been very Euro- familiar to Europeans because that essentially they were doing that with metal instead of sticks. And then there's a thing called the earth oven, and so that's more of a vertical hole, usually stones and wood put on the bottom, and then layers of vegetation and meat. And usually that was cooked for a very long time, often overnight. And then the last thing is what I call the shallow pit method, where essentially you had a depression in the ground. So not as deep as a vertical, um, you know, the earth oven approach, but you still had a depression in the ground, mix of wood and stones. And then often the meat was either put right on top of that, or there was a lattice of sticks put above that. And so to me, I was saying, okay, I could see how Europeans would see this and then um, adding their own meat uh, cooking traditions and other things puts us on the road to Southern pit barbecue. So kind of this intermediate type of cooking emerges that we that we call barbecue. Now, Adrian, you, you wrote this in the book, so anyone reading the book is going to know the answer. But I, I happen to hear you on another podcast, and it was funny because the, the person, it was like they, they asked you the question, and then they had to say, and you'll be asked this a million times. And <laughs> the, the question was, what made you write this book? And you, you write that in the book. Yeah. But I thought to myself, you know, that's probably the one question we won't ask him. And I'll tell you why. We had on Ron Swoboda, who made a catch in the 1969 World Series for the Mets. <laughs> and he wrote a book, and it was called The Catch, all about his career, which has been defined by that catch. We had him on, I don't know, maybe 45 minutes to an hour. The one question we didn't ask him was about the catch. So, so was he perplexed? I, I don't know. You know, it's probably the only interview he ever prepared where they didn't ask him about the catch. So, but I will ask you what, and like I said, it's in the book, but what prompted you to write this book? First, when I was writing the soul food book, I really thought I was going to have a chapter on barbecue because so many soul food restaurants have barbecue on the menu, even though hush hush, it's usually baked and there's just sauce poured over it. But then as I, as I learned about more about barbecue culture, I was like, no, this really is going to have to have its own treatment. But I think a pivotal moment was watching the Food Network in 2004. I was watching Paula Deen's Southern Barbecue. And in that, it was our long show about barbecue in the South. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to find out who are the leading figures and all that kind of stuff. Credits are rolling an hour later, and there was not one black person on the show at all. And uh, first I thought, well, how does this happen in 2004? And then secondly, I thought, well, maybe I got it twisted. Maybe I was watching Paula Deen's Scandinavian barbecue sponsored by Alabama (laughs) white sauce. (laughs) And I just didn't pay close attention. (laughs) 
And so then from that, I just started looking at other TV shows and media and other things. And it was a, it was a consistent problem across the board. And I was like, something's going on because I knew how important barbecue was to African-American culture. And I, I had some sense of the contributions that African-Americans have made, not, not nearly as much as I know now. I didn't know it was so extensive as I know now, but I knew there was a role. So it just didn't make sense that black people are getting no love. Well, this, this is Doug. I found it fantastic. You have the picture of Bon Appetit on page 179, right? And that's all white people. And then, and thank you, by the way, for asking me to write the article for the Barbecue Nation. And I noticed that the other, it was the other way around in the All Recipes Barbecue Nation. So that did not go unnoticed for me and hopefully for other people as well. And, and did you get any feedback on that or, you know, and what was your thinking on that? Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, that, that uh, image you bring up from Bon Appetit was just so striking because it's uh, pretty much all white, except I think there's an Asian guy in the mix. And oh, I, I, I didn't people, see him. <laughs> yeah, he's the him. guy in the beach with the beach ball in the middle. Okay. Um, okay. So, you know, when I, do, when I do presentations and show that image, I say, hey, you all remember the Where's Waldo illustrations <laughs> in the 90s? And the virtue of that is that Waldo was actually in the illustration. You're not going to see any African-Americans in this thing. You know, when, when we did the All Nation thing, I did get a few, not as many as I thought I would get, but a, a few people were like, man, thank you for such a diverse collection of barbecue storytellers. And I hope this is something we'll see in the future. Yes. And, you know, it's so, it's so easy to do. It's not hard. You right. just find some cool people, ask them to write some stuff and, you know, just make sure you get, you're getting a variety of stories. And, and the so. picture had all, almost all black people, if I recall. So yeah, yeah. I, I, I just love the contrast of that. And then you making an imprint, you know, socially on, on that as well. So yeah, I appreciated that. I wanted to ask you about the influence of the black church and, and barbecue, because you, you go deeply into this and it seems like it was a, a very special day or there was a, it happened often enough. It was like a get together. It was a, a celebration. So yeah. could you please explain uh, what the, the, you know, the black church and, and barbecue have in common? Well, you know, um, old school barbecue demands community because it was whole animal cooking, right? So it's not like you just had a rack of ribs. <laughs> you had a whole animal. that you, So you had to have a lot of people. And politicians and preachers were really the first kind of leaders to figure this out. And so there's a, there was a very storied history in the black church. Typically on a Sunday, um, the work schedule sl- slowed on most plantations. So African-Americans could do more involved cooking. Barbecue was not feasible any other day because there just wasn't enough time to do all the stuff it takes to do this. So you could do this on a, on a Sunday. And so often um, after the service, there was a, you know, there was a time to socialize and eat. And so barbecue was, was a, a popular choice, uh, especially if you had a large crowd. And so we see the examples of that. And then we also see this example of kind of secret barbecues where African-Americans would kind of borrow a pig and then go cook it off and, <laughs> and, and get together. And, and a lot of these secret meetings were plannings for um, slave rebellions and some of them, all, you know, very prominent ones uh, to the point where actually some people were thinking we should ban African-American barbecues just so they can't have that opportunity to get together. So um, we see this uh, during slavery and then after emancipation, barbecue is still a mainstay um, with the church because we have to remember, especially given the, the isolation of the rural South, churches were not only a place for spiritual food, but also for um, social life. And so having a meal, it didn't happen all the time, right? But it was frequently, these meals brought people together. And then we even see it in, in urban areas after the great migration. Churches played a huge role. In fact, my church, 
was known for its, but my perch in Denver, Colorado, uh, was known for its barbecues a hundred years ago. So yeah, we, we see this. We see this through this interesting through line. One of the things about the book is the way it's put together. So you have history, and then you go. You have different pitmasters, or they weren't called pitmasters, or but barbecue uh, people in the barbecue world. And, and fascinating stories just about them, which you could probably write books about these individual people. You have them covered on two, three pages, some of them. And you know, I'm sure you could have gone on and on with them. And then there are recipes. And it's funny because it says, the, the book says there were 22 recipes. It seemed like there were more. And yeah. It was just great. This, and, and the other thing that I thought, you know, we talk about uh, barbecue and baseball is that barbecue, just like baseball, did not have one inventor. Barbecue is it, it's just uh, all these people contributed. And as we have found out, and especially with this podcast, because we've talked to a lot of people about the history of baseball, is it wasn't just one individual person that invented the game. Again, yeah. contributors to the game and it developed just like barbecues developed. And your book makes that abundantly clear. And I just enjoyed it. I, I went back and kept reading over and over the different things. This this book is 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 fantastic. I mean, you did the heavy lifting so that we could just enjoy this. Your your efforts are definitely appreciated. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Can you talk about one of the biographies that I found very interesting was Henry Papa Miller. Yeah. Who uh, he actually he said he, sm- he spoke several languages and was in Kansas City. Yeah, and he uh, actually made sauce, but not with the uh, no tomatoes. So, now he had an <laughs> attitude about tomato sauce. I, I was reading that, so yes. <laughs> so please talk about uh, Henry Papa Miller. Yeah, so um, he's an uh, incredibly important figure in my book because you know my argument is that it, barbecue is Native American in its foundation, and then later Europeans and enslaved Africans you know, put it on the road to what we call barbecue. But you, you don't really see any written accounts of African-Americans either learning from Native Americans or working side by side. So he's an important figure because he's a guy that says, yeah, my great, great grandfather is Native American. He taught my grandfather. And so you see uh, a, a connection. So, uh, and he seemed like quite a character. And so I wanted to tell his story. Uh, you know, he was involved in that big barbecue that we talked about earlier with J.C. Walton. And it seems like he had a number of barbecue joints in kind of like Topeka, Lawrence, and then Kansas City. So, and he was in Kansas City around the time of Henry Perry. And so it just seems like he was just kind of in the right places at the right time. And uh, just did the interviews, just, just some of his quotes were great. And then I love his theory about barbecue sauce. I mean, he's basically saying that contraband uh, from the from World War II, you know, these GIs brought back their ketchup rations or whatever, their tomato paste rations, and that, that led to the barbecue sauce. So I, I don't know if that's all true, but that's something I'd never heard before. So I was like, well, I got to put this in. And you also talk about Columbus Hill. And I know that uh, a couple of years ago, even on the Barbecue Central show, we talked about, you know, Columbus Hill, et cetera. So, it, and it was a little bit of a dichotomy because he, he was involved with a lot of, what, two or three large barbecue cooks, and they, they didn't seem to go well, any of them. And, right. and, and he's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So do you mind talking a little bit about Columbus Hill and a little bit about his history and, and, and what he's meant to the, the black barbecue? 
Yeah, so uh, he he was just such a fun guy to find because first of all, he's in Colorado. So um, well, there I, you I go. didn't know we had any African American barbecue legends in Colorado at that time. I know that you know post World War II we had some people. Uh, so he's from West Tennessee. Uh, he shows up in Denver around the 1870s, and I believe it's because he followed his brother, who was a w- very well-known uh, waiter here in Denver. His name is Mohican Hill. Um, he follows him out to Denver, and then in short order, he's doing barbecues for ten, five to 10,000 people on the regular. Um, uh, when the cornerstone ceremony for – cornerstone laying ceremony for the state capitol in Colorado happened in Denver on July 4th, 1890, does a barbecue for 25,000 people. And then later that decade, 1898, he does a barbecue for the stock show, which was a huge deal at that time. And it was supposed to be a VIP barbecue for just 5,000 people, but word got out in the seedy part of town. And so 30,000, 25 to 30,000 people showed up. There was a food riot. The mayor of Denver and the governor of Colorado tried to chill people out. They were, you know, food was thrown out at them and they had to come off the, uh, the dais and uh, the, the really funny thing to me is somebody thought it would chill people out if they gave out free beer <laughs> from, the, from the Zang Brewery. And that did not end well. Yeah, not the best decision. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's true. The, the barbecue u- was used for a lot of pol- politicians in political uh, favor back, uh, back in the day. So that was interesting to learn both in your book as well as uh, uh, Robert's book. Yeah. And, um, you know, back then these barbecues, I mean, it was, you pretty much were, had an assembly line and you got a hunk of meat, some bread and maybe some coffee and you had to keep it moving. So, you know, you get, you gotta, you gotta, uh, I don't know what we would even call it today. A little sample plate, I guess. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah. But it was quite the spectacle and they were, barbecues were just a really a part of civic life. And um, I think that barbecues uh, were perfect for, because they're scalable. You know, you never hear about a fried chicken dinner at that time. You never heard about a fried chicken dinner for 10000 right? Because the logistics would be crazy. But you could do that with barbecue. As long as you had enough air, uh, space, enough labor, and enough food, you could pull it off. Adrian, on this show, when we have a confession to make, and it's usually me that has to confess because yes. I do something wrong. So I have to confess that I, I barbecue shamed Jeff. And, and I was wrong to do it. it. When I said it, it almost made it like I was a barbecue elitist because Jeff. Snob. snob. I, a snob. <laughs> yes, a snob. So J- Jeff made beef ribs. Okay. He, he's doing a lot of experimenting. And he then told me, I said, oh, that's great. How did you make them? And then he told me he sauced them. And I said, you put sauce on beef ribs? And he said, yeah, what, what's the matter with that? I was experimenting and they were delicious and my wife liked them. So I was, I shamed him and I was a snob. And, <laughs> and in your book, you are a big, big proponent of sauce. And yes. I learned that sauce is sometimes more important than the meat. So I read that and I had to, I, I called Jeff and I had to apologize profusely. <laughs> So could, yeah. could you talk about that? Yeah. So there, there is a, a conventional wisdom emerging that barbecue should be unsauced. And I, I think there are certain proponents of that, but I think a lot of it has to come from the central Texas vibe because that's the most popular style right now. But in African American circles, I'm telling you, sauce is a calling card. And you could argue that barbecue from the traditional old school barbecue was always sauced. 
but it wasn't in a condiment sense. You know, the vinegar and red pepper was added throughout the cooking process. So it's really more of a flavoring than a condiment. But I mean, I'm telling you for African-Americans, like sauce is key. And I was a little startled. I, I thought it was going to be more 50-50 as I was kind of informally polling people. But man, it's clearly, it was like 90-10. And I've been to a lot of African-American uh, restaurants where they don't even ask you, you know, if you want sauce or not. But I have to say, it, uh, I have noticed more, though, that people are, are asking, the people at the, you know, the wait staff um, are asking. But um, I've been to places where, man, my, my plate of barbecue was a pool, an ocean of sauce with little islands of meat poking through. <laughs> that, that's, that's a little much, I'd say. But uh, yeah, I, I found that uh, two things on the sauce for myself. I actually, for Juneteenth, I have never really done a mop sauce. So I did your recipe that was in the book from Henrietta Dahl. And I didn't realize I went back and researched her from the Southern cooking and back in what the 1930s or so and, and how big she was. And so I actually used her tomato and vinegar mop sauce on some pork steaks. And, you know, for, I think what that's Memphis and Tennessee. And then, then I, I just recently used it on, uh, on some beef ribs as well. So luckily I didn't let Lynn know so he could shame me on that, but um, (laughs) on introspection, on introspection, I found it interesting. I will tell people my whole recipe, but I'm very close lipped about my glazes and, yep. and that's a song. And, and I found I hadn't really ever thought of that. And, and you mentioned that in your book as well. So you mind talking about that, how sauces are kind of secret? Yeah. So um, I, I, I started noticing, you know, a lot of barbecue people won't talk. But when they do, they'll tell you everything, like how they what kind of wood <laughs> they did, the process, because they're just counting on you being lazy. They just know that you're not going to do all of that work. True. You make a sauce. <laughs> right. You can make a glaze and then that's the vault, man. It's like, or if they do tell you stuff, they'll just give you a lot of the recipes and they'll leave some stuff out on purpose. And that's what I call a lesser pea. So that's very common. <laughs> a lesser pea. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but sauce is, is very ingrained in, in the black history of barbecue, is it not? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know, when we talk about some of the giants of African American barbecue in the past, you know, usually customers are commenting on the sauce. Now, a lot of times they're saying the sauce is too spicy because like the early days, when you look at Henry Perry, Charlie Gates, Arthur Bryant, I mean, Charlie Bryant and Arthur Bryant, you know, they're, the people are saying that their sauce was too hot. So um, that just shows you that the people are, 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 you know, they're saying it's too hot, but they're like, okay, give me more though. And so you see that a lot and it's really interesting, but yeah, yeah, no, almost everybody that I know of as her, in terms of um, in my community that are great barbecuers by reputation, nobody talks about the meat, man. <laughs> Everybody's like, that sauce is bomb. Uh, uh, and, and the very first commercially available barbecue sauce was bottled in 1909, the Georgia Barbecue Sauce Company. Yeah. You talk about a little bit in the book. Could you go in a little more deeper in that? Yeah. So, you know, one thing that I always kind of wondered is why an equivalent of Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben didn't emerge for barbecue because the the black connection to barbecue was so strong. I just thought somebody would have created a celebrity, you know, pitch person. Um, But that doesn't happen. But the closest we get is this bottle 
and in terms of an early period, um, this bottle. And I love this bottle because uh, on the on the the logo, I guess, is an older African American man. He's bent over. He's clearly doing old school pit barbecue and cooking whole animals. So uh, he's not caricatured. Um, he's treated with dignity and respect, and I just love that. But that sauce never caught on because after about 1909, 1910, yeah, I just don't see any images that show up in, in that same newspaper. So uh, maybe the sauce was nasty. I don't know. <laughs> you have in the book, you know, there, there's wonderful stories, of course, the history, but, there, but there's also some parts that are not so, I mean, they're important and people should know about them, like barbecue torture. Can you, yeah. can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, I was a little hesitant to put that in the book because we just, Barbecue is associated with happy times and fun, but I really want to give people a real sense of the total culture. And so, you know, there I came across, and, and to research this book, I read 3,500 3, oral histories of formerly enslaved people looking for all references for barbecue. And I came oh. across this torture, right, that this guy wanted, the slaveholder wanted to punish someone, um, a woman, and what he did is he whipped her and then he poured essentially barbecue sauce of that time, vinegar and red pepper into the wounds. And it's just pure sadism. And so, and then there's another time when somebody basically got barbecued where they were put over a pit of hot stones or, you know, hot coals uh, to punish them. So um, I, I just wanted people to, to understand all of the connections to barbecue. And then I, I talk after emancipation, I talk about lynching. If lynching involves fire, it was called a Negro barbecue. Um, and I, I did not know that. Horrible, horrible. Um, but you did mention in your book about uh, plantation barbecue, which was, I guess, during slavery times where the slaves would, would cook for the, the their owners, I guess, for lack of a better yeah. word, I guess. Yeah. Uh, could you go into that, please? Yeah. So uh, during in the plantation kind of year, one of the big events was the barbecue that happened after the crops were laid by. So it was kind of a reward for work um, being completed. And so often enslaved African-Americans were called on to do this work. And it was a, it was a high time uh, on the plantation. So it was definitely one of the big events on the plantation calendar. So what was interesting, though, is that these barbecues became politicized because slaveholders often used those as example of, see, we're so generous to the enslaved people. Why do you guys, why are you on our back all the time? And then Northerners were saying, well, yeah, you just do that every once in a while, right? It's once a year. Most of the time they're starving. So yeah, it was interesting how these plantation barbecues were really a part of it. But um, when, you, when you get to the publications that are pro-slavery, and often these are ones where plantation owners are trading advice and stuff, a lot of times plantation owners would say to others, you know, you all really should have a plantation barbecue to boost, uh, they didn't use the term, but the, the idea was to boost morale among the enslaved. And so, yeah, and, and, you know, you would see everything. And that was the other thing. Um, you know, I always thought that just Southern barbecue was all pork, but man, you saw all kinds of animals, beef, sheep, goats, whatever. Anything could show up on that pit. Possum was, right? Oh, yeah, uh, and possum. Possum seemed to be, you know, I was going to say possum was definitely uh, a major food source during uh, many barbecues. As a matter of fact, you mentioned in the book somebody who was going to have a possum farm and, <laughs> yeah. and raise possum. So, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's out of favor now, but I, I wonder, it must have been, uh, been pretty good. 
Yeah, you know, possum was very prestigious. I mean, a um, hundred years ago, the show-off dish was possum and taters. So possum <laughs> with roasted sweet potatoes. And I was curious because I always thought of it as just like a roasted dish, but there were several times when people described it as barbecue. So I think that may be a reflection of how it was cooked. But yeah, yeah, no, possum and taters was huge. And and a lot of times in the barbecues outside the South, possum would show up on the menu. So, you know, we talked about Columbus Hill earlier. Uh, when he did that barbecue in 1898, there were 200 possum that were, part, that were on the menu, um, in addition to some other stuff. It was, it was probably one of the wildest barbecues ever had because there was bear, antelope, you know, pigs, sheep, beef, all that stuff was on the, the menu. Doug, you ever make a bear? <laughs> no, I haven't made a bear. Yeah, on your Traeger. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know if I have a pit big enough. But uh, also in the book, you you mentioned something. Uh, I think it was is it was it Mary Jean and Gus Jarbeau with regard to burgoo. Is it? I'd never heard of burgoo. Is that what it was? Uh, yeah. If, bur- it, yeah. Okay. So Gus Jobert yes. was a famous barbecuer in Kentucky, uh, and their equivalent to Brunswick stew is yes. something called burgoo. Okay. So it's a hunter's stew, you know, it's got all kinds of goodies in it. Um, you know, like some, I'm, I want to say it has lamb in it. I'm sorry. I'm, I just not remember all the ingredients. Cause I know Brunswick stew typically had earlier had squirrel and then later chicken. Um, but yeah, I think it's a lamb based hunter stew and it's a traditional style uh, in, 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 in Kentucky, much like Brunswick stew is in Virginia and Georgia. In Georgia, yeah, I've heard of it associated with Georgia, but I had never heard of the burgoo as yeah. as a, a barbecue, and it seemed to be at some of the larger type festivals in in cooks that they had. So that right. that was actually interesting to to learn about that. Yeah, yeah, I also learned about. Uh, well, let's go back to uh, Henry Miller when you talked about he he learned from his great grandfather, great grandfather learned from his father, and and the tree, right? And then you speak about. Woody Smith and his barbecue tree, which I thought was, you know, it's like handing down generation to generation, generation. That is, I thought was was fantastic. And uh, could could you talk about uh, Woody Smith and that and his story? Yeah. So, you know, we often talk about apprenticeships in barbecue. So I think that was impressive. So, you know, I just wanted to put a little twist on it and talk about the coaching tree. So, um, you know, he, he's in, he's just one of these guys that just shows up. He's um, doing kind of old school barbecue and he was hired out to go to different places. And it's quite clear that after he was hired out for a time, he was kind of what I call an itinerant barbecuer. Uh, some people started up businesses and they're like, yeah, we want to have this guy kind of teach us how to do some stuff. And evidently he was uh, working in a number of white owned businesses. And so he was written up. I mean, he was uh, in newspapers when people talk about kind of the best barbecue in Kentucky. And, and he was, you know, he was uh, featured. And so it was good to see not only uh, how he showed up in different places, but the fact that even though now he's been gone for a while, you still have the proprietors of these white owned restaurants saying, oh yeah, yeah, that's the guy I learned from. So I, I love those shout outs. Yeah, I, I did too. I thought it was, it was interesting and, uh, and nice to see. There was kind of a theme with a lot of these uh, cooks that, they were charitable. They, they definitely, they, you had one, one person in the book, I, I can't remember his name, but his goal every year was to do thousands and thousands more free meals. Uh, yeah, Daddy Bruce Randolph Sr. Yeah, that was, yeah. Uh, he was in Colorado, in right. Denver, Colorado, right? But you never, yeah. you never got to eat, you never ate there. 
I no, I got some takeout from there, but I never oh, okay. actually went to his restaurant. And okay. you know, part of that is, you know, growing up, we we just always had barbecue at home. The idea of going out to eat barbecue mm-hmm. was was a little strange. So we just never really did it. I eat well, more, much more barbecue out now than I ever did before. <laughs> ever since what it was it uh, 2004 or when, uh, no 1999 when you when you went to Austin and that's kind of oh. when you fell in love with barbecue right yeah that was in 2002 uh, oh, okay 2002 yeah, yeah yeah three days of just eating barbecue man uh, three of the happiest days of my life these days I'm sorry Lent, Lent. these days you, you you said you are, you are a barbecue uh, judge yeah. So how often do you uh, judge contests? And have you ever judged Doug's? Doug's I've never judged oh. Doug's. <laughs> I've never had that pleasure. Uh, so here's the thing, man. Being a barbecue judge, when I became a judge, there weren't many of us around. Now there's a ton of judges. So unless you're sitting at your computer when they op- announce that they have openings, you're just going to be on the waiting list forever. So I pretty much only judge every once in a while. And it's, and it's really celebrity judging. It's just like people know who I am. And they said, hey, we're going to have a contest. We'd love for you to be involved. So, man, I haven't judged in a long time. Um, and also it was part of um, just because of COVID, um, you know, lost a year there. And then before that, um, I was just busy going around the country uh, researching this book and also just speaking gigs and other stuff for my other books. So, a lot of times I was just busy on the Saturdays that they have contests. And, you know, for me, it's just like a decision. Okay, do I have fun and go eat some free barbecue or do I make some money? I think I'll make some <laughs> right. money. Right. Yeah. Well, I noticed today, today on CNN, I'm reading an article about the 15 best rubs and sauces. And who do I see as one of the contributing people? Yourself. And you, yes, you sir. And and you did, I think, what, two barbecue sauces and et cetera. I was like, oh my gosh, we're talking to Adrian tonight. So yeah. maybe talk a little <laughs> bit about that CNN uh, article that, that was out today. Yeah, they reached out to me and the, the first question was, okay, we want to know what are your favorite sauces. And commercial sauces, I just love Gates. That's just yeah. my all-time favorite. I just love it. I grew up with a strong Kansas City influence in Denver. That was just really the strongest barbecue influence. So I'm just used to Kansas City sauces. And then I really like old, old Arthur's sauce. And old Arthur is one of the people featured in my book. Arthur uh, Bryant, is that it? Yeah. Oh, no, old Arthur oh, Watts. Old Arthur, okay. Yeah, yeah, Watts. Oh. Um, yeah, who was a guy, he was enslaved. Uh, he was the firekeeper on the plantation. And eventually he gets into barbecue and lives mm-hmm. to be 107. Uh, but was barbecuing up until he was about a hundred, man. Wow, kind of central Illinois. So he's kind of he was kind of known in those parts, and his descendants have taken his recipes and they're using create selling rubs and a sauce. And then I also gave a shout out. I asked if this was this was okay, and they said it was. So I gave a shout out to my own sauce, um, a spice collection that I created with uh, Savory Spice Company here. In oh Colorado. yeah, I saw that. I saw that. Yeah. So we have a black black smoke spice collection, which features. An all-purpose, couple of all-purpose rubs, and then a Jamaican jerk seasoning, and then also a West African seasoning, and then kind of a new new seasoning we created. It was a shout out to East Texas, so it's kind of a Creole influenced. Oh, album. yum! Adrian, the next time you're on CNN, uh, if it's not too 
big a deal. <laughs> Could you give a shout out to baseball and barbecue, the podcast? <laughs> oh, yeah, man. If it fits, you know, oh, I'll make it fit. <laughs> I'll be talking to Wolf, Wolf Blitzer about politics and I'll say, hey, you know, this, this, this is a life lesson here. And it's about that reminds me of the time I was on baseball and barbecue. There you go. There's always a way to fit it in. <laughs> yes. um, so, Adrian, I want to, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, the networks and the cooking shows and how they, there isn't the um, the representation. Uh, it's all white and and at the time. So I want to ask you about um, Netflix. So I recently did watch the. Uh, they had a competition show. Um, I uh, America's I, Barbecue oh, Showdown. Yeah, yeah. And what I what I'm wondering is, it seems like Netflix with some of their shows, at least. I don't know if this is a conscious effort on their part or not. You know, but they. They are, it seems like they're trying a little bit or they are a little bit to have some representation of other people than other than just white people. What, what do you think about that? Oh, yeah, definitely. Because, um, you know, the, the, way, the way that the landscape is changing since my book came out has been pretty interesting. So there's the Netflix show. Food Network is getting better. They have something called the Barbecue Brawl series in that. Yes. Is- decent uh, representation. Rodney Scott has a cookbook out called Rodney Scott's World of Barbecue. I don't know if you know this. It's the first book by an African-American practitioner of barbecue in three decades. Um, and I, I, I know of at least three other African-Americans who have cookbooks on the way. So uh, yeah, so things are getting better. And then uh, I'm involved in the American Royal Barbecue Hall of Fame. And I, I can't take complete credit for this, but with my help and some of my colleagues, we, we've had three very diverse classes the last three years that I've been on the board. So, um, so there's some bright signs. I'm sorry, Jeff, but you mentioned in the book about the barbecue hall of fame. And it's funny before I got to that chapter, I was thinking about, I wanted to ask you what you thought about it. And then you kind of in the book talk about what you think about it, but what, what are your thoughts on, on the barbecue hall of fame and, and, and representation and, and who they, who they've been, putting in yeah so you know when they first started for the first seven years or so i mean it was pretty much all white uh, they had i think by the time i was paying attention 27 inductees and only one was african-american and that was henry perry the acknowledged father of Kansas city barbecue who should be in there but you know why is guy fieri in the barbecue hall of fame and why is henry ford who i know he gets credited with inventing charcoal briquettes but he didn't uh, somebody else did. So, you know, he, he just helped popularize them. So he's in the Barbecue Hall of Fame for something he actually didn't even do. So, yeah, you know, and I, I think it was just the people who were collect, collecting, uh, who were nominating folks, were nominating people they knew. Um, and so you see a predominantly white and predominantly competition-heavy representation in the hall. Uh, you know, I think if we had to do it all over again, I think the, they should have had a very diverse first class instead of just going three, three, three every um, year. Uh, and then you could do the three, three, three. But, you know, we're trying to figure out ways to diversify it. Uh, and so I, I think we're making a lot of progress. This is, Doug, I, you know, I'm a recovering engineer and I know you're a recovering attorney. So I actually did the statistics. And I, I know that you joined in 2019, the board of directors for the Hall of Fame. Prior to that, Famous Dave was also, in yeah. as well as Henry Perry. So there were two people out of 
17, 7.4%. When yeah. you got on the, the nominating board, do you know what the percentage is now the last yeah. three years? Yeah. 46%. Right. right Six on. out of 13 the last three years. So I was like, I bet you no one has told or, or brought that to your attention. Your impact on the, the bringing to light the black influence in barbecue is not is 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 really unmatched cool cool i'm glad to hear that i didn't know that so yeah that's good <laughs> i had a feel for that but i just didn't know the actual numbers yeah six out of 13 the last three years cool i want to pick it back on what len said about the american barbecue showdown and representation uh you, you we talked a lot about in, in your book a lot representation about african-american males really you not talk about a lot of females and you have one in here sylvie Curry. Curry, yeah. And she I remember her from, from the show, and I did not know, she, but she is the Lady of Q. And, yep. uh, so how influential is, is women coming into barbecue, or have they always been influential? Yeah, so in African-American circles, black women have been in the game a long time. Um, one of the fascinating stories uh, that I have in the book is about a woman named Marie Jean, who was born in Arkansas when it was French territory, so enslaved woman. And in 1840 in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, she was superintending a barbecue. So that's a black woman who's enslaved telling dudes what to do <laughs> about barbecue in 1840. <laughs> and I'm, that's amazing. But when you over time, um, you see more and more um, notices of husband and wife teams of African-Americans. And then even contemporary barbecue guys will tell you that their mom was the griller in chief. That was certainly my case. My late mother, Janetta Miller, she was the one who was running the barbecues while I was growing up. Um, and, and some of the people running barbecue joints now will say, oh yeah, this is based on my mom's recipes or how my mom did it. So yeah, black women have been in the barbecue game for a long time. Uh, we're seeing in other circles though, we're starting to see more women now. Certainly people like Melissa Cookston and others are you know showing out. And so- I, I do hope we start to see just a more inclusive barbecue world going flo- forward. Because to me, you know, what I tell everybody is there's plenty of room at the cookout for everyone. Sure. <laughs> now, one of the things, uh, I'm sorry, uh, one of the things you said on, on the Netflix, while I was reading your book, I actually, have you seen the movie Uncorked on yes, Netflix? Yes, I have. Okay. So I actually watched that movie. And then the next day in your book, you were talking about how the heir apparent isn't necessarily apparent. And, and it was kind of sad, you know, the, the, the number of barbecue restaurants that are closing because the, the next generation isn't taking over the, yeah. uh, you know, the operation. Yeah. Cause you know, barbecue is just hard work, man. And I, I can understand why somebody doesn't want to do that, but you know, there's so many rich legacies that, just get this, just die. And uh, it's just unfortunate. And Very so, uh, yeah, I, I think it's one is just, you know, a lot of times people start a restaurant so their kids don't have to do that work so they can go on to be doctors, lawyers, engineers, um, whatever. Um, so they actually don't want that life for their kids. But I think it's, if you're going to do old school barbecue, it's hard and it, running, running a restaurant is just hard anyway. And so, you know, I just think a lot of people just don't want to do that work. Truth. The book is black smoke. African-Americans and the United States of Barbecue. We are talking with James Beard Book Award winner, Adrian Miller. And it's not, you, he didn't win the James Beard Book Award for this book, but you know what? Yet. I'm going to make a prediction. Exactly. <laughs> that I, I think that you are definitely, I, I, would, I would give you the award right now. I think this book is fascinating. The amount of research that you did 
any fan of history, of barbecue, I know I said before how much I loved it, so I, I know I'm repeating myself. There's, if anyone thinks that we've, we've covered everything in this book, you are so wrong. There are so many fascinating stories in here. I mean, just people, I, I love it. There was there, one guy you, you called John, John Henry Doc Hamilton, <laughs> yes. uh, Doc, right? Black barbecue's bad boy. Okay. <laughs> the bad boy of barbecue. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I, you know, just that alone could be, a, I'm sure could be a book. Yeah. You've got one guy in here who, who, who did, uh, who catered for Walt Disney. And that mm-hmm. was pretty cool. Uh, and and another, you have a guy in here that Len and I actually met, which was, uh, you know, a big surprise when I saw mm. this chapter, Big Mo Quezon. Oh, yeah, yeah, we yeah. We met him at an event, and that was uh, actually it was a thrill because, uh, you know, he was really the celebrity at the event. So it was, it was okay. great meeting him. Yeah. yeah. Actually, Mo Quezon and I are the two uh, main barbecue representatives for E3 Meat Company. So I know Mo very well as well. How nice. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah, uh, Len, just to talk about Doc Hamilton for a second. You know you got chutzpah when you're on trial and you send barbecue to the court staff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know you got some game, man. You know you got some Very smart, very smart. Adrian, where can people pick up your book if they don't want to, if they don't want to support Jeff Bezos and the Amazon world? Uh, where else could, you, could they pick up the book? Yeah, so um, a lot of independent booksellers have it. And if they don't, just ask them to order it because they can, they can get it in your hands. Also, you can get it f- directly from me on my website, soulfoodscholar.com. Just go to the shop feature and you'll see it there and I'll, I'll send you an autographed copy. I'm happy to sign it any way you want. If you want me to say I couldn't have written it without you, um, I'm happy to write <laughs> it that sign it that way. Yeah, and then there's an audio, there's an ebook available, and there's an audio book on the way. They're just starting to record it. It's not, it's not going to be my voice. It's going to be somebody else's. Uh, so that's on the way, too. And adrianemiller.com, is that uh, your website? Yeah, I, I just that's say soulfoodscholar.com fo- soul okay. because gotcha. uh, people usually forget the E. So they, they tend to remember Soul Food Scholar, all one word, better. Yeah. But they, yeah, those are the same. They go to the same place. Even in the book, I found out you have a twin sister, April. Yeah, man. So just, uh, I've always wondered what would be a classy version of me? You know, what would that look like? <laughs> it's been answered, right? <laughs> good answer. That's very good. Adrian, you are, you are fantastic. What's coming up? What, what can we expect? How are you going to top this? Let's put it that way. Yeah, I'm not sure if I am because, you know, it's just hitting in the right moment because barbecue is so popular. But um, the, the things I'm work, thinking about right now is um, I would love to write a book about African-Americans in early Colorado because we had some fascinating people here that did some amazing things. I'm also thinking about a book that's a history of African-American street vendors because they were the food trucks of the 1700s and 1800s and really 1900s as well. And um, I've got their street cries. I've got the sheet music for them and the lyrics. So I think that could be a fun piece. I, I'm actually um, thinking of a book that would be a companion book and have a companion musical piece as well. So you can just say, hey, this was what it was like in 1800s New Orleans to wake up with all, this, all these people wanting to buy your stuff. So I think that might be cool. I got one other thing. <laughs> I can't end these things. I, I mean, when are we going to have Adrian Miller on again? Hopefully very soon. Soon. Um, you have in the book, my favorite African-American barbecue restaurants. So I see you have Mid-Atlantic, Midwest, South, Texas, and I, I'm looking down the list and I'm thinking, all right, when are we going to get to this area? <laughs> and 
There is nothing. So Adrian <laughs> and Doug, I want both of you to, when you're in town, you contact us and we will make sure that we go to some good barbecue places because we All also right, well, have, yes. Tell me, where your, tell me what your area is. Well, we are, New go ahead, Jeff. New York metropolitan area, New York City, Long Island. Okay. So they're look, Mets I, fans. I, Mets I fans. All right. I found some good barbecue. I just didn't find any African American owned barbecue. Ah, uh, there we go. Okay. So, so you know, home yeah. team. I liked Izzy's. I liked Main House uh, barbecue in Brooklyn. I just didn't find an African American joint. That's terrible. Yeah. That's that is really. I it's hard to believe that in this area that we don't have that. So that's yeah. I was really surprised. Yeah, I thought there would be at least one joint in Harlem, and I, I didn't find it. If how there does is one, one? I didn't find it. How does one find out about that, though? Yeah. Well, I just put the word out on on social media. I have a pretty good following, so I tell people, "Hey, I'm coming to this place. Where should I? Uh, this town? Where should mm-hmm. I eat?" And I I tell them I really would like to find an African American owned joint. You know, no name surface. So that was my first clue. I was like, nobody said mentioned anyone yet. All That's right, interesting. I, I noticed you didn't you didn't have Gatlin's in Houston though. Yeah, because I, I just felt I had too many Houston joints already. Got it. Yeah, no, Gatlin's is great. That's um, one of my favorites. So yeah. yeah. No, it's really good stuff. But I, I you know, already had Rays and Burns, and I was like, okay, you know. I understand. Spread the wealth a little bit. I understand. Adrian, uh, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure meeting you virtually, talking to you, learning about the black smoke, black history uh, with barbecue. It, it was actually this is really a, a fascinating book, and uh, if everybody should actually get read it and, and to learn more about, uh, the, you know, the history of barbecue and, and African American barbecue. Yep. Yeah. Now no, it's good to be with you, fellas. So thank you for having me on. Thank you very much, Adrian. Thank, thank you, right. Adrian. Yep. Peace. Jeff. Yes. That was really great. Wow. First of all, the book is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I really hope that. Anyone that wants to learn more about the history of barbecue, that's a great book. There are recipes, but it's not a cookbook. It's a history book with a cookbook. It's right. It's a combination. Exactly. Uh, it really is. But the history of barbecue is so deep, and you know, people they don't even. I, I don't. I don't even think before we started doing this podcast. I never really thought that there was such a a rich history. I knew barbecue went back far, obviously. Way back. Right. Okay, that I knew. But the people that have honed this craft, that have honed their craft and, and brought it forward, it's just amazing. And that was a great interview. And Doug was such a great addition to that interview. You know, he always, when we have him on as a co-host with us, he always adds, we always know when to bring him on because he always adds something. Remember we had him on with Kurt Bavakwa? Uh-huh, yep. That was good. He brings another opinion and just the questions that he asks. It's always great to have him on with us. So I really appreciate that he does that with us. Me too. And... Now we have a baseball player, Mackie Sasser, catcher for mainly for the Mets, but he also played for the Pirates and the Giants. And he, he was a really fun guest as well. So with, without further ado, <laughs> here's Mackie Sasser. 
Our guest is a former major league catcher who played from 1987 through 1995 for the San Francisco Giants, Pittsburgh Pirates, New York Mets, and the Seattle Mariners. He holds the distinction of being the first Mets catcher to throw out speedster Vince Coleman, who had been a perfect 57 steals out of 57 attempts against the Mets. Unfortunately, on July 8th, 1990, in a game against the Atlanta Braves, he was run over on a play at the plate by Jim Presley. Our guest made the tag, got the out, but left the game with a badly sprained left ankle. After recovering and returning to the game, he had issues throwing the ball back to the mound and was considered to have the yips. However, he never let that define him, and he went on to help many other players achieve success. We are extremely honored to welcome Mackie Sasser to Baseball and Barbecue. Mackie, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Mackie, uh, you were drafted in the fifth round by the Giants, and you came out of the Troy University out of Alabama. Did you tell us how that process went and your reaction when you were selected by the Giants? Well, I actually I signed that year. I signed with LSU, and I was five hours short, so I went ahead and went to Troy, which is probably about 45 minutes from where I live. And I was, you know, I had a child and a wife, and I was there in the fall, and it just wasn't working out because I was working back in Dothan, driving 45 minutes a day, trying to do what I had to do. And I just called a scout for a friend that I had that told me he wanted to draft me. And fortunately, I, I, it was a good thing I called him. I had to, back then, it was 120 days I couldn't be in school or have anything to do with the program. So I called him two days before that 120 days, and he told me what I needed to do. So I withdrew from school and waited for the winter draft, and that's how it all came about. Mackie, you were you were a heck of a, a offensive player. Was that something? Were you always that good offensively, or was that just something? Did you develop that later? I was always a hitter. I always had been, and I mean, I hit since I was. We didn't have t-ball since five years old. I could hit, and you know that pretty much what got me where I was getting, where I wanted to go, and you know it got me to the college and everything else. I just you know I didn't play high school baseball. I uh, Ran into my coach when I was a freshman and told me I had to play JV and I had to have my hair cut and I wasn't cutting my hair. I had my hair my whole life. <laughs> and it was pretty long. And so I just decided to get a job and play summer ball. And that's pretty much what I did. And I got, you know, picked up at Wallace Community College where I coach now. And, you know, it all just fell into place for me. It looks like you uh, only played a couple of games of the Giants before being traded to Pittsburgh. And you were traded in 1987, I believe. Right. You, ma- you manage here in, uh, with Pittsburgh as the uh, a great manager, J- Jim Leyland. How did you get along with him? I got along with Jim fine. You know, I think probably if I've had some really good managers, you know, Davey Johnson and Lou Pinella and Leland and Wendell Kim was my manager my whole minor league career pretty much. And I think probably Jim Leland was probably the best coach I had. As far as understanding his person, you know, his person, personnel on a team, how to handle each one of us and, and, and get you to play. And I really thought he did a great job doing it, that kind of stuff. Mackie, I, I did it. This isn't even a question that I had written down, but I, I just thought of it as you're talking about all these great coaches. And I started thinking about Tony La Russa, who is now back, I right. believe, age 76 with the White Sox. That's right. Um, and I'm just wondering, what, what do you think? He has more experience. He's forgotten more than most people will ever know. But... You know, the, the thing that they always say about uh, older coaches or whatever is that the game somehow passes them by or whatever. 
What, what do you think Tony Lewis is going to do? I, I don't mean you know win the World Series or whatever, but how do you how do you think that's going to affect him? You think you think the game's passed him by? Well, it's passed me by, and I'm a coach still. You know, <laughs> you know everything's a home run. But you got to understand, he coached for the A's, and he had you know Caseco and those guys, and you know they played for the home run, so it may work out for him. But he, I've only met him two or three times, and he was very much an let's just say an attorney of a manager, if that makes sense. He knew how to handle his personnel too and knew how to get the best of them. You know, and I, and, and I think he, he might do okay. But, you know, the game has changed. There's a lot of things that's changed in this game, and, and I really don't care for some of them. But it's changed, and they're moving on, and, and hopefully he can catch up with it and, and do what he has to do. But, you know, he likes to be hands-on, I think. And, you know, a lot of these kids, they don't like hands-on, if you know what I mean. Mm. So. You know, there's been there's a lot of experimenting this year. Jeff's been on a couple of podcasts talking about these potential, uh, these possible, well, the rule changes in the minor leagues that they're I going to have. Somebody emailed me. Yeah. Howard, actually, Howard Smith used to be Major League Baseball. He emailed it to me and showed me. I, I don't know, man. It's just too many changes. Now, I do like the change where you can't have the shift. I think it makes the game better. It'll be more hitting going on, more excitement. You know, the, the shift is just – to me, is way overboard. I mean, you know, you take left-handed hitters, they're playing in right field, you know, taking away base hits. And, and you know, we didn't have that back when we played. And, you know, you, you tried to hit the holes and do the things you had to do and, and make adjustments. The day, they, you know, they just I always say they just get on the line and look for a fastball, a hunt fastball, and try to drive it out of the park, pretty much, you know, how they play now. Do you and, think you could have hit out of the shift? We're always saying, you know, if they're putting the shift on, you know, hit it the other way. And we've spoken to some people and they say it's not as easy as that. Right, not as easy as that. <laughs> you know, they've got a shift on because they're pitching you a certain way. You know, if they're playing you to pull, you know, they're going to pretty much throw you hard in or they're, they're throwing pitches that you pretty much have to pull. I mean, it's hard to take a 97-mile-an-hour fastball on the inside of the part of the plate and hit the other way. You know, used to they used both sides of the plate and did a lot of stuff and, and mixed it up. Now you know, you've got these big guys that grind and, you know, they're coming at you with the heat. And, they, you know, when they're hitting their spots, it's, it's tough to do. Now I would like to lay down some bunts in today's time if they play me pool, though. <laughs> now I'm going to bring it back to your playing career. Uh, you were traded to the Mets where you had your, your greatest success. You played for David Johnson and a Met favorite, uh, Bud Harrelson. That 88 team was uh, – that, that's a hell of a team you went to that – should have went to the World Series. I know you you fell into uh, – you, you got Oral Hershey's on, on the Dodgers in the playoffs. That was tough. It was. That was, a, that, was a great, that was a great team. Yeah, that was a great team. And, you know, he'd come in, I think it was 59 innings he hadn't given up a run. Mm-hmm. And he, he just controlled the game. And when he come into play, he, he, was, he was just on. You know, it was like anything you try to do, he was there to match it. You know, and he, you know, he even came in relief in one game. But, you know, he got, I think he got three wins in that series. And, you know, I think the biggest turning point in that series, there was two good teams playing, and we were good teams. And I think we beat them, what, 11 out of 12 times? 11 out of 12. And, uh, you know, the one mistake I thought we made was when Dwight was pitching, he was pitching a hell of a game, doing a hell of a job. And when Shelby walked, Randy Myers was ready, we should have went and got it. But, you, you know, Becky – I was at that game, and at that time, I was saying, oh, oh boy, bring in, bring in Randy Myers. I, I just had a bad feeling. You know, in my mind, I played that back for a couple of years, and Davey Johnson, you know, he might have made a mistake, but as being a coach for the last 24 years 
it's a gut feeling. You go with your gut. You know, you go with what you think is going to win that ball game, and we're going to make mistakes. And he made a mistake that night. So it is what it is. It's over and done with. But that was a hell of a run that year in '88. I mean, it was a fun team to play with. You you caught, you caught Dwight Gooden, great pitching staff, Lon Darling, Sid Fernandez. How was that? Well, you know, I didn't start catching until really in double A. You know, they started priming me to catch. Fortunate for me, I started catching double A with guys had a little more control and, and making it easier for me to catch. But when I got with those guys, they made me feel, feel wanted. Uh, you know, I didn't catch as much as I'd like to, but, you know, we had Gary Carter there. But when I did get an opportunity to catch, it was fun to – them, you know, teaching me the game, how they pitched and how they did things. You know, and it was easy. Once you figured out what they like to do, they like to stay with it and get it done. And it was uh, fun. So, but it was a great pitching staff. Mackie, you know, the backup catcher on, on the team. I, so, you know, you're the backup catcher. In this case, you're the backup catcher to Gary Carter. So, right. it's the chance of being the the first catcher is basically you've got to, you know, knock them unconscious and, and take over. So there, there's really not a chance of that. But how, how do you prepare as the backup catcher, knowing that you might get in a game, right? So you always have to be ready. But then again, chances are you're probably going to catch, what, once every week, twice every week, perhaps? Right. What's, well, what's that, the preparation? That wasn't even the case because, you know, we had Barry Lyons there with us too. So right. if a left-hander right. was pitching on his day off, it was going to be Barry Lyons. I was still going to be sitting there. But yeah, fortunately had- for me, I'd had some success with the Pirates. And, do, you know, with pinch inning, I'd done pretty well with it. And it kind of carried over when I got to uh, the Mets. You know, I, with carrying three catchers, I get the chance, you know, opportunity to possibly win a game or get a big hit late in the game. So I had, I prepared myself for that also. But you knew, but when Gary was catching, you knew he was going to catch. You know, the thing you need to do while you were sitting over there, especially me learning how to catch when I was in double A, I learned from Gary. Gary taught me a lot about catching. You know, he was probably – I mean, I'd love to see him in his prime because I was playing in the minor leagues. I really didn't get to see him a whole lot. But he was one of the best blocking catchers I've ever seen. I mean, he could really block a ball very well. And he was older and his knees were ice packed down every night. You know, I learned a lot about a lot of things, just little things that you would never notice, you know, as a fan in the stands, just little things as a catcher would know. It, you know, you prepare yourself to play every day, to do something to help the team win or, or whatever it may be. But when you got your opportunity, you try to take advantage of it to be seen and, and do the things you need to do. I think the first game I started for the Mets was in San Francisco against my old team. And I kind of had a grudge against them because, you know, I've never been traded. And I really didn't understand the business side of it. I played one game against the Pirates when I was in the big leagues with the Giants for two weeks. The next thing you know, I'm on the Pirates. So it was kind of just one of those things. But I think I hit a home run and a double that day. I wanted to make sure I was seen. And, you know, it paid off for me down the road when, when Buddy took over. Well, I'm going to say in 1990, you were, you were the starter for the, for the Mets. And you know, that pitching staff was, I'm looking at it now, it's unbelievable. Frank Fiola, who won 20 games. That's Dwight right. won 19 games that year. And you had David Cohn, Sid Fernandez, and Vern Darling. What a staff. That was a great staff. It was fun to catch. I mean, each day it was something different. And Frank Fiola just brought so much to our team. With You know, he just could, he was a finesse guy. Great pitcher, and all the old guys could pitch too. And it was fun catching every day. You know, you knew you were coming to the park to catch. You knew you were going to play, and you knew you were going to do what you had to do. It was just unfortunate I got hurt there in July. And I think me and Dave, Dave Magan was probably two of the hottest hitters in the game at that time. You know, Mackie, the, I was doing research for this interview, so I happened to 
watch a special that you did and we're going to talk a little bit about it. I think it was a 30-30 special and I saw the play and I cringe. I, I can't even imagine what feelings it brings back if you ever watch that. But how do you stand there? It, it's amazing to me. You know the collision is coming and you just, you stay there. You don't flinch. You hold on to the ball. I mean, what, how do you, how do you psych yourself up to do that? It's just, I, I mean, I know it's part of the game. Okay, but a play at second base, the shortstop or the second baseman, they take the ball and and they try to get out of the way of the of the runner coming into the base. They they don't just stay there. You are you know, you're getting knocked down. You know, you're going to happen. That's right. Well, you know, Jim Presley is a good friend of mine. He lives right here in Pensacola. We we go way back before that ever happened. But. What happened was it was right before the All-Star break. I think it was a two-to-one game. I can't quite remember. I have to look it back. It was uh, Kevin Elster gave me kind of one of his nonchalant Huntington, California-style throws he used to throw sometime. On one hopper, and I kind of had to go to my knees. And when I went to my knees, I gloved it okay. And there he was, you know, coming down the third base line. And if you look back at that film, I was kind of in front of home plate. I wasn't even on home plate. So he had plenty of room to slide. But what happened was most of the times when you catch a throw, you're not down with your feet up under you, you know, and your knees on the ground. You're pretty much ready to take the impact. Well, I wasn't ready to take the impact. And what happened when he come down and hit me, he crunched me down instead of just roll me. He crunched me down. What that did was flip me back and my ankle stayed up under me. And that's where the, that's where the injury occurred. But, I mean, it's that's part of, you know, being a catcher. You know, I wish they still had the rule where you could run somebody over, but they don't. But. It was part of catch. He wasn't the first one to ran me over. I got ran over three or four times pretty good. So, But it was unfortunate that that happened. My ankle was really bad off. They taped it so thick. I couldn't rock forward to throw the ball or do what I needed to do. And uh, I just got in a really bad habit. But that habit was there before then. I got hit with a foul pitch and triple-A ball in Calgary, Canada, when it was 30 degrees. And I should have come out of game. And I told my coach, I said, I can't really throw. And – Wendell Kim wanted me to stay in the game, so I started flipping the ball back. And then I set out the next day, and I came back, and I couldn't get out of flipping the ball. It was just something that happened. The trauma hit me on that shoulder. You know, it's unfortunate, but I had a great career still, so I, you know, I can't complain. You know, you know it, sorry, Jeff, I, I just want to follow up with that. It's really, if Jeff or I have something that is troubling us, right, you know, psychologically or whatever, we could go – to a, to a therapist or whatever and do it and, and nobody would be the wiser and, and that's it, you know. Right. You have this issue in New York, so there, right there is, is, right. is the, all the papers, in front of thousands and thousands of, you know, packed stadiums, so 50,000 right. fans, and you're dealing with this. I, I don't even know how you, just the fact that you were able to go out there as tough right. as it was, and deal with this. I don't know how you did it. When I ask you what went through your mind, what what were some of the ways that you even got out there? Forget the fact that you were having trouble throwing the ball. I mean, it was documented that in all the papers and everything. It had to be so tough to have to deal with that. What what was that like? It was tough. I mean, you know, when I could play the outfield or do something somewhere else and do those things, it was fine. I knew that I didn't have to get behind a plate. But when I knew that I was going to – they always posted the lineups the night before. So I already knew if I'm in the lineup or not. So when I'd go be in the lineup behind a plate, right then and there, I was already thinking about it. How am I going to handle this situation? How am I going to do this? Or what am I going to do here? 
And at first I had everybody behind me, pitching staff, because I was hitting. If you can hit, you hit. But I, you know, it just got to the point where I was hurting the pitchers. You know, I was slowing the game down. I didn't keep them in, in the place they need to be, reps and doing what they had to do. I was slowing the game down with everything going on. And I understand why some of them didn't want me to catch. And I understood it, you know, not from their point, but from my point. And uh, I knew that, you know, it was a problem, but there was nothing I could do about it. I mean, you, just, you really don't understand. It's like, you know, I want to throw the ball back just as everybody in those stands wanted me to throw the ball back. But it just wasn't happening. It's like something was just clicking in my brain and it wouldn't let me do it. And what happens was, what happened was my, my hand felt like it would not release that baseball. It was like it was glued to the ball. And, you know, I got a player now on my team that's got the same thing. And, you know, I send him to my guys in New York whenever I can and, and let them work with him. But it's something that happens. You know, you take Charles Barkley with his golf swing. You get up to the top and can't pull it back down. It's the same form of something. And the last people I worked with was in 2005, and they're still really my good friends, and the 3030 is part of it. They really took a big load off of me. And they went back to my childhood. They started working me all the trauma problems I've had over the past. And they started loosening up because I couldn't throw batting practice. And then once I finally got done with them for two or three days, I mean, I could throw batting practice like, you know, just the elephant was off my back. You know, I always wanted to, I always said at that time, I wish I could go back and just see if I could just do it in the game. And, you know, I'm older and it was no way to happen. So, I've let that go. It don't bother me. I talk about it all the time. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the way to do it. So, you know, I try to help kids doing it. But it was it was it was hard when people sitting there counting one, two, three, and you're trying to throw the ball back, especially somebody I thought that I've I've given them plenty of thrills throughout my career there in New York. You know, so it's it's a tough situation. Yeah, Matthew, you, you mentioned that you wish you didn't have that rule for for catchers. Well, I'm talking about the contact part. Right, you know, exactly. Now, yeah. now you can't run them over or do anything. And that's part of the game to me. I mean, that's I love that. I mean, that I got hurt, but that's just part of the game. You know, I watch plays that are clean and get run over and get up and boom, it's over. The blind side is what gets you in trouble when you're not looking. or You know, it's like Kevin Reimer when I went with the Seattle Mariners after I left the Mets. The second game of spring training, I'm catching – and Tino Martinez is playing first base, and I'm in the first base batter's box. He throws me a high wild throw, and I tried to make the sweep a tag, and he just he cleaned my clock. He broke my scapula. I mean that that was a, a major injury. I mean that's where I that's where my hitting started going downhill. But I always love contact. I played football. I've done it all and do everything. So, but I don't like the fact that you still can't slide hard or you can't you know run into the catcher if he's blocking that play. All right, you can't break up double plays and you can't go into home plate hard. Now, if it wasn't uh, Buster Posey who was involved in that play to change the rule, I mean, here's an all-star going to the Hall of Fame. Would that rule have been changed? Eventually, yes. Oh, you think? Okay. Yeah, I guess right. Exactly right. Because second base. They're trying to change the rules now, you know, with the the 15 seconds between pitches and all kind of things. You know, it's just – I think they're just experimenting with it. I don't know if it ever changed, but they're just experimenting with it in the minor leagues. As a catcher, when did the 100-pitch mark become time to take out the, the pitcher? I mean, do you feel that the pitcher has lost anything? When travel ball started. When travel ball started, okay. Well, I mean, they only play – they throw three innings. That's all they throw everywhere they go. And so their arms, that's about what they the limit is. 
But you got to remember, though, that all these guys are bigger, stronger, physical. They throw harder, and it's more wear and tear on the arm. So they're really trying to save the arm, I think. Mm-hmm. And now you've got all those guys that can come in behind them, you know, every inning. So back in the day, you know, those guys would throw nine innings, 150 pitches, like nothing. Right. And I'm, I'm look, obviously – I'm a fan, not, not a professional, but I, I'm thinking if the pitcher is throwing nice and easy, with no stress, no runners on, you know, nice, easy game, they, they can probably go a little longer, but I think that 100 pitch mark is out of the game. I don't know what it is either, but it is kind of crazy. But they, they have all the specialty, like I said, on the backside. So, you know, just saving the arm for the long run. I guess so. Well, now you're a college coach. How do you coach your players? Do you have that 100-pitch count uh, around there? Yeah, because we only play seven inning games. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I carry a 12-game, a 12-pitcher staff, so we're fine. I mean, as of right now, we're just starting our conference. I'm three games in. I had a bye last week. So i still got 28 games going conference. So about that probably 25 mark, they're going to start going a little longer because the time we get in our tournament play, you know, everything becomes a nine-inning game. So they're going to have to last at least 120 pitches for me to get through games. I mean, I've got kids that come in and pitch, but their arm will be built up enough to be able to do that. I'm not going to hurt a kid's arm and throw him 150 pitches to 160 pitches because, you know, they've still got two years of college left after me. So, you know, I'm I'm more protecting them to get where they need to get in life. Now, Mackie, let's just go back for a second. When I was watching this 30-30 special, and, I mean, it's right there on the Internet, so – I really respect the fact that you are so tra- uh, transparent with it, that, you, uh, you know, that you allow them to film, you talk about your childhood trauma. You, I guess what you learned and what we've all been learning, and there's so much more to know, is that the, the, the brain is such a muscle that is, there's so much that we don't know about it. But it's just amazing that they found out that childhood traumas the traumas that you've encountered would affect your throwing ability. Right. Well, I, you know, they say what happens is it, it, it gets overloaded and it can't process anything else. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's the point I was at. Right. So I, I had to release all this where everybody else that worked with me, you know, I've worked with priest hypnosis, mm. you know, all kind of different doctors. You wouldn't believe Mets had me going all kind of doctors. And so does Seattle <laughs> and everybody else. But, they went back to my childhood and cured the person instead of the problem, if that makes sense. Yep. They were trying to cure the person inside me instead of just my arm problem. You know, everybody was trying to fix an arm problem. Throw this orange dot in a glove or do this and this, you know, just all kind of stuff. But they, they went through me like a fine-tuned column, and they asked me every question. And it was amazing by me telling them and them starting to work with me. I mean, it, I bet I cried for an hour and a half just letting it all just I'm not I'm not no soft guy, but I mean mm. it just it was so overwhelming to get it out and get right. it done. It was just really, really it really worked good for me. Mackie, you, you gotta know in New York, you are a fan favorite. Uh, tell us uh, about that. I mean, you gotta know that you were you were one of the, the favorites of, of, of the crowd. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I mean I you know, I've been doing the Mets Fantasy Camp, Mets Fantasy Camp for the last four or five years and they all tell me that, and you know, and and to me, the key for me being who I was there was to be myself. I'm, I'm not fake. I'm not anything else. I was a Southern boy. You know, most people, well, where are you from? That accent. You know, I tell them, and we just strike up a conversation. But 
I felt like I did some things to make it that way. You know, I could get a big hit off the bench or I always felt like I hustled and I gave everything I had. And I, you know, I think that kind of, you know, built who I was and that's, you know, I didn't leave nothing on the field. I, I, I did everything I needed to do. Well, the fans in New York really appreciate it. The Mets fans definitely uh, love the way you, you played. You know, Mackie, it's great that they get to the root of, of the issue at this point. But can you imagine if the Mets had somehow, back when you were playing and you had the issues, and right. then you, your career, it may have been different. But um, I, I get the feeling that you don't have any regrets as far as the way things have gone seems to be that you're happy with the way you're coaching now and talk about what, what do you lo- what do you love about being a coach I guess is well it's gotten hard the last few years I can tell you I mean the kids are different you know I'm old school mm-hmm. I believe in playing hard doing it every day in and out and everything but what I get out of it we just talked about most of it because what happened to me in Major League Baseball and all the stuff I went through I'm able to teach better if that makes sense they, they, they understand I've come from this. I've come from that, mm-hmm. you know, and it don't matter who the kid is. I'm going to try to help him and do what we need to do to make him a better ball player because I want him to be able to go to – they all want to be drafted, and that's not happening. We all know that. There's too much more people out there in all these other countries that get drafted. Mm-hmm. But if I can get them their education and get it paid for, I've done my job. And, you know, I tell each and every one of them, you know, I want to get you to the next level. Let them coach you after I get you from here. Let's just try to get you education play for. If you get drafted, which I've had a lot drafted, that'll take care of itself. But right now our job is to get you your education. And the number one thing, well, you coach this player. I said, well, I coached him, but he did everything. He's the one that worked hard to get where he needed to be. But the best thing that happens to me when my kids come back and call me and talk to me all the time and, you know, tell me they love me. And I'm just like I am now talking to you as I am talking to them. You know, we cut up. They always want to hear the old story, locker room stories, and the whole nine yards. We have fun doing it. <laughs> now, you, you must have some locker room stories. I mean, some of your teammates, oh. you know, Daryl and Doc, and you, you were teammates with Barry Barnes and Bobby Bonilla. Yeah, that's right. And, and Cone, all those groups. It was Dykstra. You got to remember, you, you're not even saying the ones that were the crazy ones in there. <laughs> <It was laughs> Dykstra, <fun>. right? <laughs> and Wally Backman and those guys. But we had some good times, so it was fun. Every locker room is the same. You always got your guys that are comedians and doing stuff, and you got your guys that are serious. But it, it's, it's, it's a fun time. Locker room is probably what I miss the most. You know, it's just my friendships with those guys. And, and, and speaking – I'm sorry, Lennon. Speaking about that, you have like a kinship with the with Met catchers. I mean, I see a lot of you guys, sometimes they're hanging out taking pictures, uh, I guess – uh, with Ed Hearn and Barry Lyons. I, I've right. seen uh, guys get together. They're like a kinship – with all you guys? Yeah, we have a good time. We go to camp. We go down to camp. And there's there's six or seven catchers down there. And we sit around and have a good time and talk. And, and just, you know, it's pretty neat that we were all catchers from New York Mets. Yeah. And uh, it just goes to show you that we're all still interested in baseball and, and do a lot of things together. And we have a good time together. Me and Barry lives over in Biloxi. And I, I go over to Biloxi every now and then. So we see each other a lot. And uh, we have a good time. Well, Mackie, you actually, I, I'm sure that this is going to come up at the next reunion. The fact that you, Ed Hearn, Todd Pratt, Barry Lyons, you've all been guests on Baseball and Barbecue. And I am sure that when you see them, they're all going to say, you know, you, I, I mean, I know. I, I could tell uh, already the conversations that you're going to have. 
we're gonna have a good time. I had, I had, I had seen Pratt. I've talked to him a couple of times, but um, he's coming down to play golf with me at Destin in a big tournament, and we'll leave straight from there. We'll go down to uh, the fantasy camp for two weeks, so we'll have a good time together. He's and he's, you, he's a fun guy. And you're all still involved in the game. I know Barry Lyons is with the Biloxi team down there, and, and right. Pratt, I think, is a minor league manager. Uh, yourself in, in college, even uh, you mentioned Wally Backman before. He's a uh, a manager of our lo- local independent team, the Long Island Ducks. That's right. That's right. We all we all stay around baseball. I mean, it's hard to get away from it. Now, Mackie, uh, you're I'm, in I'm, Alabama, I'm so and and I I know you weren't prepared to to talk about this, and maybe you have right. nothing to do with it. But what's barbecue like in Alabama? It's good. <laughs> <laughs> the guys that filmed the thirty for thirty, I gave it to them every day. I get it from a different place. And they ate it and ate it and ate it. You just got to know how to cook it. You know, I mean, it's – I cook a lot of barbecue myself. I cook a lot for my players. Um, I actually do a big – it's called a Boston butt sale, but, you know, that's the shoulder of a hog. Mm-hmm. And I cook about 2,000 of those, and then we cook port loins, big old long port loins and ribs. So we, I, I, I do a lot of barbecue. But, okay, so that if we could ask you a few questions about that, when you're cooking at home, what are you, what are you cooking on? What are you using? I use a green egg, the best one I've ever cooked on. Yeah. You cook perfect. it slow or you can cook it however you want to cook it. And yep. so it's a, it's a good grill. We had Howard Johnson. We had Hojo. On. Hojo. Uh, big green egg user. That's right. It's a great, it's a great tool. So anything you want on it, slow. And the, the sauce there, uh, Alabama is, well, other than Alabama white sauce, but uh, what is it, like a, tom- it's a tomato-based sauce in Alabama? Yeah, most of them are, yes. I mean, a lot a lot of the restaurants around here carry more of the sweet sauce. Mm-hmm. And you got your mild, I mean, you got your sweet, and then you got your medium, and then your hot. And it's more it's more of the vinegar-tomato-based sauce. Are you making your own sauce? Do I? Yeah, I, I mix my own little sauce. Let's into that. Well, we, like. <laughs> we need we need Mackie Sasser's sauce recipe. Yeah. That, it's, that's really simple. it's really simple. I, I mix Heinz 57 with ketchup, vinegar, lemon, and then you just put whatever spice you like in it. Nice. And you, yep. get, you put your half a tube of butter, and you stir it all in and heat it all up and let it cook a little bit, and it's, it's pretty good, actually. You know, you say it's simple, and it might be, but if it's delicious, we had on Nick Mangold, Right. A former, you know, former Jet. And he has now his own sauce company. Right. So, you know, Mackie, that could be could be another career. You know, you find, you find a lot of good things when you just mix things and, you know, just what you think your taste is going to be. You know what I'm saying? You know, yeah. you can add a little beer in there. You can do whatever because the alcohol is going to cook out and give it the taste. So, you know, you just keep playing with stuff as things work out. Yeah. Definitely. Now, are you cooking baby backs or... St. Louis ribs. I do, I do both. Yeah. Baby backs. I do spare ribs too. You know, just cut all the fat and get all the stuff off of it and move on. Brisket is, is the best of me, a beef brisket. Oh, yeah? Oh, okay. Well roast and cook good. 12 hours? Yeah, about 12 hours. It takes a long time if you know what Listen you do. you, Jeff. That's perfect. 12 <laughs> hours. It is about 10 to 12 hours, depending yes. on the size. <laughs> of course. Yeah, right. It depends on the size. Exactly. But, you need uh, to get some stuff called gunpowder. You ever heard of it? No. It's a spice for beef and rub. It's a rub. It's called gunpowder. And try it. You'll be you just rub it however thick you want it. Just rub it on there and cook it. It's amazing. Really? It looks just like gunpowder. Oh, okay. I gotta, I gotta look it's amazing. Up, uh, yeah, I gotta look that up. 
gunpowder. Gunpowder. I'm sure I could get it on Amazon yeah, or because online or whatever, but it's it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Well, Mackie, we want to really we appreciate the time you take uh, oh, taking yeah. to talk to us. We we really appreciate it. Like I said, we were fans of, of yours, and I know all New Yorker, uh, you know, really appreciate what you did for the Mets, and uh, we really appreciate you you coming on the show. Very much. Well, I appreciate it. And the Mets was my favorite team. I learned a lot and learned about this world. I mean, you do so much in New York, and I really had a good time there, and I had a lot of good teammates. Well, we thank you for coming on. Yes, thank you, Mackie. Everybody. We hope maybe one day we can meet you in person. We would Sounds like great. that very much. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. And we want to thank Mackie Sasso for joining us on Baseball and BBQ. Len, I really liked that interview. Yeah, I really liked it. Again, that's kind of a gift to us because we are big Met fans. So when we have a former Met on and we could talk about the Mets, it is a nice thing. You know what, Jeff? I knew there was going to be people we were forgetting. When we started this podcast... We had some music. I, I can't even remember, but it was like this twangy, uh-huh, yeah. whatever music. And now we have an intro song and usually an ending song by two people who we've never actually met them, but they are so good to us to have given us the music. It's Dave Dresser and Shel Krakowski. Of course, we call them the musician and the poet. And they are, they, they found our podcast. They told us about their song, you know, Baseball Always Brings You Home. We listened to it. We loved it. Then they wrote an intro for us. And, and it's, become, it's become a part of our show. So yep. they, we, I, we thank them as well. Absolutely. And we're going to end this podcast with Baseball Always Brings You Home. Len, we're going through, uh, you know, our, our triple digits now. Wow. So the next one's 101. Yes. (laughs) I'm looking forward to it, Jeff. Me too. And with that, here's Baseball Always Brings You Home by Shel Krakowski and Dave Dresser.